back, everybody, to another episode of Overdue Rentals, the podcast where we talk about films that are just not getting enough attention that they once did. You know, they may have been something that got a lot of rah-rah, siskumba when they first came out, but for some reason, the cheers have died down. I'm Matthew Shuckman. And I'm Cinema Blends Mike Reyes. And today, we have a very special guest, uh, which thankfully we had enough time and distraction to figure out how long he'd need to cook at 350 uh, degrees Fahrenheit in the oven. Yes. All right. I stumbled a little bit, but it was a good reference. Okay. I stand by it. I stand by it because today we have Marcus Dunstan, who yes. is half of a team that has done everything from Saw movies to indie horror movies like the Feast film. I think it was just Feast they did. I well, they, 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 yeah, they wrote the spec script for the, for the uh, project. What was it? Project Greenlight. That's what the show was. Yeah. They wrote the script for the Project Greenlight. And then uh, I've now forgotten the name of the gentleman who directed it. Uh, who's uh, Clue Gulliger's child. I'd love to get Clue Gulliger on here. As we uh, <laughs> continue to promote the fact that we have Marcus Dunstan on the show to talk about his <laughs> new epics Blumhouse co uh, collaboration, Unhuman, as well as the 1990 horror anthology. You may know it by the name of Tales from the Dark Side, the movie, but it was sold in Europe as Tales by the Dark Side, the, from the Dark Side, the movie. <laughs> We're in all kinds of places today, everybody. It's, now, you know what? It's it's that type of day because this is just, this is something that is so exciting. And also I really, I'm going to spoil it, spoil it here. I really dig Unhuman. Well, yeah, you know what? Unhuman is going to be something that I think a lot of people are going to glomp onto. It's going to be very interesting to see the, re the reactions when it comes out. I have to say that, uh, you know, Marcus is somebody I, I've, I've known about. And uh, we'll, we'll, let, we'll let you clue you in on this one, everybody. We're recording this after we've already spoken to Marcus for this part uh, of the intro. I did not know how much of a cheery, just overly lovely gentleman he was. I, I don't know if I've ever saw any, any of these interviews before. I only read stuff. Man, what a, what a happy guy this guy is. This episode is a warm hug, ladies and gentlemen. And it's, all a, and it's a warm hug that talks about fire explosions or what looks like explosions and packed with supernatural lovers that may need a little bit better wording. But I'm not gonna spoil it because what I'm going to say before we jump into things here though is if you wanna find our back catalog, you can find us on Anchor, uh, which we happen to do a lot of work with in terms of like putting the podcast together, but also anywhere else you find your podcasts. We'll do the spiel again later because you know we wanna promote ourselves here. We love talking for you, to you, at you. Through you, maybe. But now know. it is time for us to welcome Mr. Marcus Dunstan to the Overdue Rentals Rental Counter. Portions of the show may have been pre-recorded to keep the freshness of quality intact. Well, thank you, thank you, though, for joining us for that for this time. Oh gosh, absolutely, my pleasure. This is an honor. Um, likewise. <laughs> okay. We will start off though with, of course, talking mm -hmm. about Unhuman because that's that's the that's the flavor of the week. We'll we'll put it as right now. Thank you. Yes. Well, I, you know what, Mike? Mike is so excited. I'll let Mike go. Please go right ahead. Oh well, I mean, you said it's the flavor of the week, and I feel like it's it's both scoops with the cherry and the the whipped cream, especially because I go into this and I didn't watch the trailer. I knew it existed, and I knew that you know, Epics and Blumhouse have been uh, pairing for these horror movies. Like uh, I saw Torn Hearts not too long ago, which is yeah. also very fun to watch. Yes. But then I'm watching this, and I'm thinking, okay. I think I know where this is going. And then that beautiful sort of flip uh -huh. in one moment 
where something I thought was important in the beginning comes back. It's like, oh, oh, wait. And just the, the, the plot to this and the, the, I have to say you have some very Scott Pilgrim visuals here. Oh, um, what's, what sort of sparked this, this idea between you and, and your co-writer besides the, you know, the obvious uh, John Hughes and Stephen King influences? Yes. Uh, well, this was, we, I kind of saw this as an adaptation because mm. uh, Paul Soder wrote the first draft. Uh, Paul Soder gets 100% credit for that, that twist. And its application was in the back 40 and in a dialogue, a uh, piece of dialogue. But they're like, wait a minute, there's a whole movie universe there in the sense of what that means in terms of a story that our adaptation was going to take it and bring in um, the idea that movies exist in, in a way that has educated us. So if mm -hmm. I could sell this studio and letting me call it an after-school special at the beginning, if I could then take the hammer to the head language that they had and then tee it up with stereotypes where like, isn't, isn't, he's pretty much from the blob. That's like the same varsity jacket. He's pretty much like, wait, weren't you in Revenge of the Nerds? Wait, aren't you kind of an offshoot of the Ferris Bueller principle? Wait, you're pretty much Cameron. You know, then uh, we actually had somebody dressed exactly like Judd Nelson, you know, with the fingerless gloves and everything uh, throughout. So these portraits, of, of combustible youth, of, of versions that felt a little like we were seeing a fever dream. And yeah, because these, these kids were showing up to be in uh, this genre. They're, they live in a genre. Their genre is teen comedy. Hmm. But then what happens is the horror movie has been waiting there being like, you know, upon re-examination, some of those teen comedies are quite appalling in what they teach. I'm gonna wait in the woods right here where horror movies live. And I'm gonna stop that bus and teach them a lesson that we've been teaching forever. If you're an asshole, you die. If you have sex too young, you die. You do drugs, you die. You push drugs, you die. If you're any part of a compromised soul, you'll die. And even if you're great, you're probably going to die. But you're going to die knowing you could have been better. <laughs> wow, you just made me love the movie even more. Just <laughs> through that lens. Bless you. Thank you. Well, what does it come to then when it comes to you and Patrick working on the script? Is it, is it always the same kind of relationship? Is there something where like, one of you is focusing on more so bringing in those stereotypes or those archetypes and creating them into a world and the other is considering on the visual language of it, or is it just really a back and forth relationship? Patrick was raised in Evanston. So it was kind of neat that there he was, you know, right in the epicenter of that, of that time. And I, I worked at a movie theater and was able to see most of these movies again and again. So our, our like partnership has been awesome in the sense that he has, the literary, the structure, the, the writing, the architecture of, of the word is just in that man's DNA. And I was the kid in the basement that just watched, watched, mm. watched. I would read a very small target of Roger Ebert reviews and the compendiums and Stephen King stories, and then watch everything, just like that medium. Um, and that's, hey, that's due to having vicious, vicious acne and therefore, you know, thinking I should be in the dark. I didn't want to, eh chose one side of the camera for a really doggone good reason. Then uh, this opportunity comes along to go back to high school, these four years where for Patrick, it was one thing, for me, it was another thing. I was in uh, Macomb, he was in Evanston as, as previously mentioned. And you know, there, there are things that happen there. My, the bullying that happened to me was, was prior to high school, but it never left me. It was, yeah. this, it was this wound that I desperately hoped to turn into a weapon lest it swallow me whole. Mm. 
and that weapon ended up being unleashing in horror movies but unleashing on bullies so if someone was going to get hurt and i was responsible for that character they asked for it in some way some way that reminded me of that and then in this case i get to say like whoa the buffet's here for an entire theme of bullying and we get to examine on all sides of it because you know what happened as an adult I saw those two bullies again, and I saw what age had done to them, and I didn't wish them ill will. I looked at it instead how how far I how far I I, I elected to fight to not let it define me. You know, just let it. Like I just hope that they were okay. <laughs> yeah. Like at that point, like I was happy with my life. I hope they're happy with theirs. Like yeah, you ever do that to one of my kids? Oh. <laughs> Smash for the two by four. Repeat. Oh goodness. Go. Wow. Who knows what my imagination will unleash then? But yeah, it was uh that this was a chance to really kind of put a spotlight on that. And and then the that was then that there, yeah. So there's the genesis. Like it was it was nice to have that connective tissue to it and and really embrace what uh what we remembered of that iconography. Well, is there something setting it apart from the idea of thinking of those characters from other stories and other movies? because it is a modern tale, is there something about you that goes back and thinks like, well, look, no matter what, no matter what's changed, things are always the same. The bullies are always doing the same kind of thing. People are feeling the same ways, but that maybe youth of today didn't match exactly the same thing I remember when I was young and you had to kind of play with those characters a little bit differently based on timing. Yes, and, and that was exemplified by the monologue that was uh, conceived, like the premise of the monologue, Josh, Mickle delivers uh, in the middle like it doesn't matter it doesn't end here it's an effing plague it's the same bullies it's the same cop it's the same and he's speaking as someone haunted by by that never moved on from the moment let yeah. it define him let it rot him and and in that I thought like okay now we're getting there and the score Charlie Clouser gave isn't pushing it towards horror isn't pushing it towards anything but like drama like no we're gonna just thread and it really is a thread because it's threading the needle so the string-based instruments are going uh see uh see uh see <laughs> it's, it's funny too and i i i feel yeah. stupid about it yeah i was watching the i watching the credits i see charlie Clouser's name i'm like first note wow charlie Clouser scored this thing and then i totally forgot to bring that to bring it to write it down even for today so thank you for bringing it up absolutely he uh man i mean i i love him you know, uh, I, I uh, not. Yeah, yeah, it's just he's so kind. He's any he, and like I, I, I approach like a kitten, pause out before the lion. Like, all right, we don't have a hundred zillion dollars. <laughs> Imagine that. We got that point, Yeah, by that point, he's always like, "It's all right, man. I already washed it. Like, I got some ideas. It's gonna be cool." You know, like, oh, thank you. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> One of the best titles I could come up with to sort of sum this movie up was 28 Heathers Later. Oh, because, hey, right on. Because and I don't do that as like sort of a, oh, it, this this movie's, blah, blah, blah. it's not a derisive thing. It's like, well, if I have to quick pitch someone this movie and it has to be like, I have to get everything in there, what's it gotta be? And it just came to me. It's like 28 Heathers Later because of the whole, oh, the, I love the, it. the angles of high school being hell. And then this zombie plague, which, kudos to your makeup team because like the vein action and the eyes were, oh, were just oh. you know what's cool is uh lauren downey uh one of our producers alex crooner one of our producers 
we had to um, we had to earn some extra makeup support on this, and you know the environment requested it first and foremost because imagine trying to uh, maintain the uh, the integrity of vein structure when it's you know, 100 degrees and whatnot. Not mm. that this was impossible, the because we'd seen you know examples of shooting in inclement weather do that before. But hey, with us, we, we, we were a little different. It had a different color, different texture. It had a different effect. It had a different twist in its origin. And thank you to, after uh, listening and proof and whatnot, we had to earn it. But thank you, Lauren, you gave it to us. So that's why you have that. The results show, they more than show. Just, ah. Uh, that's awesome. <laughs> I can't, seriously, this is just, I, I love when I can stumble across a movie that hits so many sweet spots and it's just a lot a real blast that locks me in i'm amazed that this is around an hour and a half because it doesn't feel like it it just oh, feels like you. i i just fell into it oh thank you well, thank you very much we um for across the board we wanted to figure out how to out outsmart that and outsmart outsmart the outsmart the the, the couch outsmart the attention span because you know i like all right we're we're making something uh, with a cast comprised of folks in a certain attention span mm. range. Now, what are they looking at? What are they watching? It's like, well, it's gotta, you gotta earn them every, every 30 seconds. It's gotta be something. So then um, a, a wonderful rule is if, if you get the freedom and you can kind of blend genres here and there. So, Hey, we got 15 minutes of the best version we can to, to homage the the teen comedy so we can be a little more savage here then we enter a new world where we're saying all right remember the the woods around the evil dead cabin a little bit of uh and i would just play kid cuddy uh destination mother moon to kind of get the cast in, into a mindset of like this isn't horror it's it's something else that's happening that will scare the hell out of you and then that beautiful location um that came with a lovely face that's half skull just waiting to be like come inside for the rest of this and like whoa and then dario argento was in the third act going like i got this <laughs> bring me your trauma <laughs> well it's all it's also funny too thinking about you know not just all of the literal locations and, and physical things you can see because there's a certain i guess i'll call it gloss that comes with newer equipment and you know and yeah we can go in we can add grain if we want but you you didn't do it but you still had that feeling of those older films it, it still felt like it was a Hughesian slash Halloween kind of atmosphere even with the newer technology thank you thank you that's a courtesy of a marvelous director of photography Lynn Moncrief who uh, also I did Pilgrim with for for Blumhouse and with that shorthand we just broke every act into different uh, different genres, uh, like two horror shove genres, but the bubblegum world is act one. That is it. Everything's bubblegum. And then I, you can see, I've got, still got a varsity jacket there provided by Yulin Hufke. And, and so what she did then with the costumes really fills it out because the outside of a bus can be that beautiful yellow, can be the, the perfect cornfield, but inside they're, they're fairly um, old avocado. You know, they're just not, mm. there's not a lot there. So then it's entirely the presentation of the clothing and the actors and whatnot and framing the world kind of like here. Um, and that was super helpful or aiming straight up where we had a little bit of light and, and could maintain that. Then advancing further, well, then we got to play with the good stuff. So I, I, I appreciated the nimble nature of, uh, of the camera work and boy, man, our, the whole camera team was just 
friggin' awesome. Uh, I, I loved it. Called him Christmas and Natrix were the nicknames I had for the two main operators because every, if it was it, everything felt like impossible in the schedule and everything they did felt like a gift. So then she got mm. Christmas and Natrix. <laughs> <laughs> <sighs> and about how long did it take to to get this in the can uh we were given 22 days we lost a day to uh, an all-in kind of day to the lightning strikes so about 21 days hmm. <sighs> yeah I, I, that's the one thing is i almost like i don't want people to know that to ever expect it again because mm. like what yeah. i would have rather uh you know uh had uh, more time but hey everybody was so doggone good and very trusting too like if you I turned in a shot list for the last week and I and then I found out later after after the success of its completion that there were panic meetings about the ability to execute and it reminded me of a moment from the movie Moneyball where at one point I was I was called on the carpet and this this could have been a bad this could have been bad for me um uh and, and it was the last week so i just thought like okay i can share you know my shot list it's not like the here's what we're going for shot list it's not like anything no it was it was deliberate i wanted every department to be able to look at it and see what it is and they're like you've got look at all these shots you want to get look at all this stuff like you've only got three days and then the only thing i had in my back pocket and it was inspired by Moneyball, was i made this list with this amount of setups um do you know how many setups we got every day last week you know, like, and I walked him through the week on this day, 50, this day, 60, we got 85 on this day, 87. There's only 40 on each of these days. Oh, oh, oh. And like, I, I, you know, I don't need this moment to be like a, wow, I'm awesome. I just need you to trust me. <laughs> like you guys are great. We're going to do this. And then some, and we did, we got more than those shots. And, and it just, that's how good they were. And it, that's the money ball moment when the young man at the end on video hits this ball, runs, trips over first base and hugs it. Doesn't realize he hit a home run. I was yeah. like, guys, you hit a home run. You're the best freaking crew I've ever worked with. You can do this. Like, trust us. We did it. <laughs> it's it's also great, though, to hear that. I mean, unfortunately, I had to lose a day. But the fact that you said due to lightning strikes, because in this day and age, you expect to hear from a COVID close down or something along those lines. Uh, there, well, that, that took a swing at us too. We lost, uh, some personnel along the way, but we were very fortunate not to, uh, not, it didn't ever quite stop us. The thing about the lightning strike is you have to shut for safety un understandable safety reasons for 30, 40 minutes, uh, per strike. So you could be 28 minutes and ready to go. A strike happens at 29, you're back to restarting the clock. So it was four, four hours here, three hours there, two mm -hmm. hours there. And then that, that, you know, when you're shooting a pretty much 10 and a half hour day, you lose that day, even though you still have 22 calendar days, woof, you lose that day. Um, and, and that, but at the same time, nah, these people were just too damn good. It wasn't going to stop. See, that's just, I, I, I'll say it time and again, I love hearing those sorts of stories from sort of running gun productions where it's like, okay, 21 days, we have this much money, we're doing this. And then it just, it works and it forces you to be creative and exciting. And it's, it's just that sort of thing that you don't hear about it as much. No. Well, and the two, um, the two real folks that delivered all these resources and, and were the heads of this crew, Paige, uh, Paul Udo and Paige Pembleton, 
the first thing they said to me was, hey, we don't want to save any money. We want to spend all that we have on this movie. And if you work, you know, no matter how big the idea is, they're like, we're not going to say no, we're, but we will tell you how. So yeah, I knew we need an explosion. <laughs> like, well, okay. But through a combination of digital and sound to make the boom, what we could do was a flame bar that ramped up a little bit with the frame rate <laughs> would do that as long as it wasn't in the open where we'd need more, but it could be in this van that they'd used in the Purge TV show. And then I, okay, great. <laughs> I'll take it. Now, just to clarify, in case anybody was wondering, this is a different Paige Hamilton than the singer and guitarist from Hamilton, uh -huh. right? Yeah, Pemberton. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, Pemberton. I mean, okay, good. That makes that makes it much easier then. I, I heard Hamilton for some reason. <laughs> yeah, I mean, these two, I call them PMP Music Factory because they just made it sing the whole time. <laughs> Sorry, I'm like, I cut you off there when I asked a stupid, stupid Paige Hamilton Pemberton question. No, no, no. You didn't cut me off at all. No, we've, oh, okay. we've got a good environment flowing here. In fact, I just added Moneyball to my list because I totally forgot to throw that in there. No one talks about Moneyball enough. I, I love that movie. It's, it is, it's, it is weird. It is one that, like, when it came out, massive, massive, massive push for it. And then now, hey, it still gets some mention, but not, mm -hmm. as, much as, ever, not as much as it once was. Yeah. That happens yeah, with a lot of those awards movies. Yes, and this was one that I just I just found it to achieve uh, a, a particular theme and tone of of self doubt in the in the realm of things outside of your control, and like it just it, it just found it to be a a symphony of controlling nerves and hope and and the stew of life. Like it's really it's it's, it's a special narrative. Oh, so so here's the important question: Do we now shift to a Moneyball episode out of nowhere? Oh, yeah. By or do we means, move on to Tales from the Dark Side? I can, I can fire on all pistons, whatever you want. I can, I can, we can make a whole show about the comparisons between the two. This man is practically <laughs> a co-host at this point, and I love it. <laughs> I love it to death. Bless you. <laughs> Although before we do shift over, since you did mention you had some stuff about the, yes. uh, the contender you wanted to mention, yes. go right ahead. Uh, I mean, hey. It's amazing kind of what's sometimes movies are oddly ahead of their time or or just prove that they're timeless. And I there was the these following statements by the character of Lane Hansen. And you know, like, what is this? What did this movie say on its day? The loudest was, oh gosh, they just they're, they're, this invasion of privacy. This like, gosh, that like people don't why do they need to know why what is this why are they going after this person so much is it because she's a woman the candidate is it because it's opposition is it just the soulless nature of character assassination for people that need to define what to protect in our character and then you just see this stalwart uh joan allen's uh, lane just keep taking it taking it taking it and then even in a particularly uh, now moment, learns a vulnerability of her opponent, Gary Oldman, and you see the tee up in order to lay it out there for all to see. And when this character doesn't take the moment to mimic a strategy of character destruction, but instead demonstrates the character she wishes to uphold and inspire with, it leads to that great conversation and the line that I try to keep in my brain and heart at all times. Principles only mean something if you stick by them when they're inconvenient. That's coming to Blu-ray soon. 
Oh, it's, I mean, like, why was it ever not on Blu-ray? You know what I mean? Like, no, <laughs> no like it was, it's been out of print for so long. Oh my, well, goodness. It, and, and so then, uh, so then if I may, this would be yes, like, by all means. Um, this is Rod Lurie and Joan Allen executing this moment. And was this movie 2002? 2000. 2000? Okay, yeah. 2000, 22 years ago. Closing remarks at congressional confirmation here. Mr. Chairman, ladies and gentlemen of the committee, and this is Joan Allen's character, Lane, saying this. Remarkably enough, it seems that I have some explaining to do. So let me be absolutely clear. I stand for a woman's right to choose. I stand for the elimination of the death penalty. I stand for a strong and growing armed forces because we must stomp out genocide on this planet. And I believe that this is a cause worth dying for. I stand for seeing every gun taken out of every home, period. I stand for making the selling of cigarettes to our youth a federal offense. I stand for term limits and campaign reform. And Mr. Chairman, I stand for the separation of church and state. And the reason that I stand for this is the same reason that I believe our forefathers did. It is not there to protect religion from the grasp of government, but to protect our government from the grasp of religious fanaticism. I may be an atheist, but that does not mean I do not go to church. I do go to church. The church I go to is the one that emancipated the slaves, that gave women the right to vote, that gave us every freedom that we hold dear. My church is the very chapel of democracy that we sit together in. And I do not need God to tell me where my moral absolutes are. I need my heart, my brain, and this church. <laughs> Good Lord. Could that have been said today? I we just got lost. We just got lost in your in your in your uh, reciting it. Actually, to be honest, right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, especially just because of the fact that everybody, it, 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 apropos of mentioning Moneyball, everybody thinks about Aaron Sorkin when it comes to sort of the premier sort of political idealistic image. Mm -hmm. And while he certainly did tee it up, Rod Lurie, in his own way, not only followed through with it on the Contender. But then to a certain point with commander in chief, although yep. I know he says he won't talk about it, talk about it at length, but he did say in a recent, uh, I think he, he retweeted like a, a, an entertainment sites breakdown on what supposedly happened with the show. Cause he was fired like first season. And he's like, oh. I can't really tell all of these stories because some of the people that are involved are no longer with us, but let's mm. just say X, Y, Z. And wow. That's a complete shame because the man clearly still has a lot to say about yeah. things like that. I mean, I, I still have to see it, but I know he did the outpost recently and that looked mm -hmm. phenomenal. Yeah. And, and man, it's just, it's just one of those things where I'm like, man, this, every time I've heard or read that speech, it's meant something new. There was another element of it that was the dominant headline. And that just describes an episode of the news. Yeah. 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 It's, it's very prescient, uh, you know, like I, I, I think we talked about this the other day. I can't remember now, Mike. But you know, the, that idea of like, I, I get it. I understand the fascination with the Simpsons predicted it, whatever it may be. But uh, mm -hmm. there's a difference between prediction and just understanding the world and being able to voice it. And that's understanding the world and being able to voice it before everybody else kind of just realizes it themselves. Yeah, absolutely. You know, which brings us to tales from the dark side. Yes. <laughs> The man, wow, just clockwork, synergy, other buzzwords that obviously sum up this process here. Tail, yeah, because honestly, what were, what were your, bleh, I have words, I know words. 
the last words. Uh, <laughs> Marcus, if you are our guest, we will ask you this and then Matthew, you can go, I'll go after you. What was your first exposure to Tales from the Dark Side, both as a movie and as a series? Oh, as a series, it was it was the one you sought out. It was the the eerie uh, opening and the, and the gravelly voice and these stories that I, I would say earned the term based on the feeling of just being chilled, chilly. And the episode that most encapsulated that was uh, Case of the Stubborns, where the young Christian Slater is at uh, grandpa's funeral, but grandpa just won't lay down and die until he uh, blows his nose and his nose flies off. and then you see the last thing is this wide-eyed boy looking at oh i guess i'll get in there now he walks out and then you look at the kleenex and there's this rotted nose and it just was like oh wow (laughs) don't don't we all have that fickle relationship with our ending like "Mm." (laughs) you just don't know when to quit yep and i and i loved how it was uh uh, a you know a, a nice uh, podium for a lot of uh, a lot of debuts, a lot of wonderful voices coming in. Tom Savini's Under the Bed was just so wonderful, just a beautiful realized nightmare. Because uh, who hasn't raised their bare feet up just a little quicker, thinking like, well, I don't know that anything's under there, but I don't know that anything isn't. I love that, just great. <laughs> and then the movie, I remember. Um, now, for, if I'm if my factoids are correct, the movie was a uh, it was a nice title to put on the movie for its original intent may have been to be like a third theatrical creep show, mm-hmm. if I'm not mistaken. Well, we'll go into it. Yeah, I'll keep going. I'll, I'll go into okay. it after. Like that was what I, and I don't know if that's been fact checked or whatnot, but you know, I want to say that it's in the in the Googleverse. You know that that I read that I was like, oh really? So I remember I was at uh, I was at a dance. Uh, <laughs> And uh, I was really excited because I was leaving to go see Tales from the Dark Side. <laughs> see you losers later. I'm going to go get scared. Yeah, I'm going to go by myself to a horror movie. What, what? Well, I know, I know that the, I know it's, I would say 100% fact that at least the Black Cat was supposed to be written okay. for a creep show. And then was turned into into this. I don't know if the whole thing was meant to be where the where they were working on Creep Show and they decided to switch and change it, to change the name. It it look, Tales on the Dark Side doesn't have you know any specific um, you know prescient uh, history of having all of their episodes based on specific items. So like when you learn that Lot Two Forty Nine was a Arthur Conan Doyle story, you didn't have to go oh well then it can't be a Tales on the Dark Side or officially or anything like that, but. From what I understand, yeah, the Black Cat section was supposed to be a creep show thing that got turned over, and that's as much as I know. That's wonderful. Yeah, I uh, and talk about a a wonderful installment. I you know even when that was such a doggone inspirational movie, and especially segment that I w- I was able to get the soundtrack, mm. and, and I could use it. And like uh, our, our world history teacher Sue Ellen Rickleman would let us make videos instead of write papers. So I could use the Cat from Hell uh, suite to to uh, get the the spooky version of history out there. <laughs> I dug that, <laughs> and I also love that it had something to say. Like it wasn't, you know, it wasn't just this uh, evil versus nasty, which was is fine. But what it said about big pharma, it poked mm. that there, uh, and and plus it had a brilliant, gross out, clever ending. Like the, the the master of death and the master of nine lives going at it 
and then like how are you gonna trump this like oh that's a doozy what i find interesting about it too that that section is not so much this didn't hit me when i first saw it because i did see it when i was younger um but it's really technically the first totally straight performance for david johansson i would say because at the time he had a lot of stuff that was it's not like he wasn't a serious actor in that sense but you know it was him growing he was most known for the public still then forget about new york dolls that was the buster poindexter years almost absolutely and when he was doing a lot of these other roles they were a little more energetic and straight out there but him just being it so straight was something that people weren't used to at that point well and and i like that horror has kind of been there for uh comedians outside of that genre or performers to do so and this movie is a checklist you have debbie harry at the start you have yep. a beautiful performance by robert klein as the agent in in the third segment yep. where it's he, he he brought this identifiable world weariness and i think he actually played a really nice version of a, of an agent like he he says it like he has heard it before like <laughs> hey, i'm sure he has yeah ain't doing anything i can sell how am i what am i what do you want you know, and then so when he comes back, it's a shoulder shrug and they're, they're fine because the guy understands the transaction, you know, <laughs> excellent. And even, uh, and even Radon Chong, like was uh, James Ramar, like these are, yeah. horror was there to also help resurrect and then also announced like the cast for the, you know, once again, Christian Slater returning to Tales from yep. the Dark uh, and you've got, you know, I mean, and I could just read the cast list, but you got the early Julianne Moore and early Steve Buscemi yeah. with her. <laughs> Absolutely. And and a and a wonderfully wicked sense of humor uh, throughout that was yeah. was beautifully done, yeah. I, you know, it had um, it was delightful. It wasn't. Uh, it was that wonderful era where the horror was genuine, clever, could be gross out, but was not traumatizing. Wasn't hold it down, hold something innocent down and hurt it. It was. It had a, that nice calibration of everybody in this is going to ask for it and they're going to really get it. Yahoo! And then. The nice thing is the you know the the more romantic side of it in the end where it, it had a, a a brave dose of uh, tragedy to it. Yeah, I mean James Remar got to basically play a gothic romantic lead, and just yes. when you look at James Remar's resume, that's not something that was often thrown in there. He's one of those no. again that I, I don't know how many weeks in a row we've said this. We love character actors at Overdue Rentals. They're and the best James type Remar. of actor that just the best into anything, and yeah. that just. That segment breaks my heart because all I all I have thought through the decades that I have seen this film, because this was an HBO staple for me as a kid, it started with that art because the art of the book and those red eyes and everything. It's like, that's, I feel like if you grew up in our generation, that's where most of the, the horror fascination started was the wonderful box art. And then you just, it was either on TV or your parents just happened to want to watch it. And you got, that was your ticket in. Yes. And that segment always stuck with me because I get that technically he told someone. So therefore that, I guess, kind of breaks the, it, the violates the curse and whatnot. <laughs> However, it's her. He tells yeah. her there has to be some sort of like no. flaws along the way where it's like, look, sweetheart, I know you mean well. I'm that gargoyle. Never do this again. But I get that nature is cruel and that rules are rules but i'd still feel like there's some sort of wiggle room there oh what is it so what is it's it's lesson is that um did he lie and is this him you know truth so that does it justify like well the white the white lie the innocent lie especially like i was actually attacked by a gargoyle can lie you know that night 
yeah, yes, you should honor that. But, but her language was promise. You made a promise. And yes. so in that, there's the important relationship lesson. Don't break your promises, not with your love. It costs you everything. Yeah, I mean, because that's that's my, my my thing is like, yes, I understand that um, it, it could be seen as it's a curse kind of thing. And if you say it, it was cursed, but it's, it's much more about the relationship status. It's much more about how they communicate with each other, which is the more important part. And I love the fact that the film, the, it's it's so funny to me that it's not funny because it's, it's it should be, it is remembered most for that segment. And it and that segment is what kind of wowed everybody and is well worth it and should be what everybody sees. And so I'm glad it, it has it was persisted. Well, how about I was, you know, as, as Twitter as do, oh man, well, yeah, there was this, hey, someone posited on Twitter yesterday, what are your favorite holy F moments in cinema? And someone had a screen grab of the, you promise, you know, like, hey, cool. <laughs> So unfortunately, we have to wrap because we are running out of time. I do have one small question before we go. Sure. Is the collected truly dead? No, it is not truly dead. I have a phone call today. I mean, I have, this thing is going to be untying gently a Gordian knot of, uh, of many, uh, of just many elements. Um, and thank goodness, I have been, you know, grateful to communicate with, with, a whole doggone team that's working to do just that. So it's 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 tough to dole out hope in in portions because yeah, we're we're still in it with uh with hope to get that realized. It'll probably still if for anyone who wants to see it right now, it's still going to take too long. So can't do it right now. Uh but yeah, we, I think it will. It just um you know why is because we had enough uh realizing we we shot enough to put together a, a teaser. Mm. And anyone that sees that teaser that is kind of thinking like, I guess business-wise, he's like, well, regardless of what you think of, of the type of violence or the story or whatnot, our goal was being achieved. So if there is merit to that, then all right. And if somebody feels they can, they can make a profit on that endeavor, all right, it's worth gently untying the Gordian knot to see if it can be figured out. So there is hope. And if anybody needs evidence as to why Marcus Dunstan and Patrick Melton should be allowed to make the collected on whatever budget or whatever schedule, see Unhuman, which is going to be debuting on Epics. Uh, what what day is that again, Marcus? That's June with a three. Ah, yes. Global <laughs> six three. But thank uh, you again so much for joining us. Come back anytime. Bless you. Thank you. No, ah. thanks for you get the word out. Thanks for your kindness. Thank you. Have a good Take it one. Easy. Take care. That was Marcus Dustin, ladies and gentlemen. I mean, you would have never, you could, it's just one of those things where I guess you would call it the Alice Cooper effect, where it's like Alice Cooper had that image of like the, the macabre goth rocker. And then, and then in the nineties, there was that phase where like he, he was seen golfing and people are like, that's Alice Cooper. <laughs> and it's just that, that separation between the image and body of work and the actual person. And look, yeah, I mean, I would never want to say that I would expect anybody, you, you know, whether it's horror or thriller or crime, whatever it is, to automatically be like some like glum downer or something like that. And I never wanted to, 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 to make it feel like that's how I think about people. But like there is just, there's great people 
there's really easy to get along with people. And then there's Marcus who's on that level who's like so high, like for people who can't see my hand is going, you can't see it out of the camera. Who's just like, it's just such a presence to be around. It's like, you gotta just enjoy it. He is a golden retriever man. And as a fellow golden retriever man, at least from people that have labeled me as such, I appreciate that. And that's probably how he and his co-writer get to create all those wonderful, horrible things. It's probably like how he and Patrick Melton create like th those horrible saw traps or like even just the beast from Feast. And and again, this this is this comes from a very unhuman comes from a very special place in the heart. And like even with I didn't read the press notes before because oh, no, I've been, not what I've actually been, I mean, that's a that's a practice I just go by with films in general. But what I've also noticed, especially with the Blumhouse Epics collaborations they haven't been doing in-depth like, oh, here's 20 pages about the production in South Africa. What they've been doing is they've had director statements that are just very targeted and succinct and then cast bios. Yeah. And I appreciate that because it does leave us more leeway to ask things in an interview. And they did the same thing with, uh, I, I ran into the same thing with uh, Brayer Grant when I did the junket for Torn Hearts. Yeah, well, it also, it seems like there, it's almost too, and I, I don't know, I don't know how I'd want to put, how I want to convey this in my mind, but it almost seems like they're trying to be very, very, very secretive, I guess you'd say, with everything yeah. in this movie. Like, you, if you even go into IMDb right now, no character names. Yeah. They won't even tell you who people are playing. And you know, not that it's hiding that a lot of smaller movies anyway. Yeah, but it's it's not that it's hiding like some sort of twist or anything like that. It's just like why don't you just watch the movie and enjoy it? Come back later, and we'll maybe we'll give you some information. <laughs> yeah, it's it, it just feels kind of like it almost feels like pre-internet days and just older sort of. You can get hype out of these things, and Blumhouse has has definitely tapped into that because they were also very secretive with their uh, the series of Amazon films that they had done. Oh, the, the yes, the um, what did they what what was that? What was that? The the overall title for those? What was the, the like the conglomerate title? I can't remember. Oh, hold on for a second. Mike, he's got a box. It looks like it's sealed. He has not he has not opened it yet. He's gonna hold up. He's gonna tell us what it is. Here we go. Okay, so it was called Welcome to the Blumhouse, and the mm. reason I remember that is because they gave out collectors jigsaw puzzles when they were doing the press run for the first four that. I think they were supposed to be eight in total. I don't remember if they released the other four or- I know if... the second round of things came through because I remember I, I didn't do any of the junk, but I remember getting the emails for them. All oh, right, yeah. I think I saw emails for both of them come through and I, so I think it was four and four, yeah. And what's interesting about that is that was a partnership with Prime Video. And now this new wave of movies that's been coming out, Torn Hearts and Unhuman has been through uh, Epic. Oh, oh, epics. That's right. But they're also premiering on Shutter too, right? No, or am I wrong about that? I think it might. It, they might go to Paramount Plus. I think they go to uh, Paramount Plus if it's epics because epics is something that Paramount has a a stake in. I think, or at least they have some sort of agreement with them. But yes. yeah, so I'm I'm hoping they do because it, it, I, I'm assuming it might run on the same sort of window as like a theatrical, where like maybe 45 days after. This, this is going to be going to VOD for rental and purchase as of June 3rd. Uh, so I think after that point, I don't know when it would go to streaming, but it's worth, you know, it's worth going out of your way to watch it. Uh, 
What you won't have to go out of your way to watch, however, is Tales from the Dark Side, the movie, because it is on HBO Max. Uh, something that we seem to be running into quite a bit lately when it comes to our nostalgic nostalgia fixes. Yeah, well, yeah, this is like two weeks in a row that we're all going about not only HBO Max, but talking about films where it was early Julianne Moore. <laughs> yes, uh, Julianne Moore, come on the show. Um, but you know, it's, you know, I remember watching just, I, we talked about a little bit about when we were talking to Marcus, but I remember, to, I remember seeing Tales on the Dark Side, much like you, I think it was much more like on HBO and it's premiering on HBO and showing all the time. And yeah, it was like, I remember enjoying it. And I remember, cause I was very young. And so like the gorier type of things were still not really part of my, my zeitgeist, I would say. So like it, it rolled this line of where it had like a little bit of gory nature to it, especially in the first two, uh, um, full uh, vignettes because you yes. know the wraparound necessarily doesn't with Deborah Harry, um, and so Deborah stuff Harry like, at her most matronly too. Yes, which is very true. But yeah, just like David jo- jo- Johansson is like yeah, it's like the very much yeah. like the the very plainish versions that you can get of them. That oh, you know what? I totally even though we mentioned both of them in this, I did not put that together. It's like these two like alt rock icons and they're like at their most uh, i guess civilized in yeah big quotes well, there. yeah we, and, and air quotes are civilized clothes. because debbie harry's character is very not civilized as we know but her presentation yeah. is yeah well yeah they're, they're in plain clothes so to speak and that's i guess that's just kind of the the even more subversive fun that you can throw on top of this because look i remember watching tales from the dark side the show on wpix 11 because they would do the reruns along with Monsters, which monsters, was another, like, yes. Yes, those were the two, like, heir apparents to Twilight Zone. That was also when the new Twilight Zone was on, like, the 80s one. Yeah. And that, oh, I remember staying up late to watch those on CBS. Like, they would show them, like, Friday nights, I think. And, like, I was total night owl as a kid. Like, my mother, my grandmother, and I would go out shopping on Friday nights. Like there's, there was used to be this store called H&L Greens and it was like almost like a dollar store with like anything you could think of like flowers and like coloring books and such. Like I was a nut for all the coloring books and everything. And it would basically be like, go out for the night, come home. And then I would stay up into the night, like anything that was on TV, new Twilight Zone, Friday night videos, like I was on it. And then Saturday morning cartoons the next day. And yeah, this was another one of those ages where the anthology show was king, even though yeah. it didn't last for too long. Like, I, I don't even remember how many Tales from the Dark Side or Monsters episodes there were. They feel like those shows where you just kept, you either kept seeing the cer- certain ones again and again, and it just felt like there were more than there were, kind of like Rugrats. Yeah. Because there was well, like only yeah. 60 episodes of Rugrats, and you don't know <laughs> Well, the thing when it comes to the movie, there's, there's so many interesting things about it. Like we, we discussed a lot during when we were talking with Marcus, but again, you know, that whole thing about the idea of the, um, you know, originally trying to be a creep show uh, movie, which I think that I, the Black Cat definitely was, I think, filmed ahead of time. I think it was filmed beforehand because it's the only one, because that's directed by George Romero. And it seems to be the only segment that's directed by somebody else. Like the rest of the movie, the vignettes plus the wraparound all have one single director. And then all of a sudden you have Romero coming in to do the black hat. I can't say if it was filmed prior to. 
I know it was meant for Creepshow 2. Yes. But that would be very interesting if it was actually shot for Creepshow 2 and then just excised. It just, I I, I can't, I can't, it's, you know, it, it lists that it was uh, originally going to appear in Creepshow 2, but scrapped due to budgetary reasons. So it obviously wasn't filmed for Creepshow 2, but me, I think there probably had to been so much pre-production that went into it with Romero attached to it that he came on and just completed it as part of this because it seems so odd to have a whole film done with all the vignettes by one other person, just one randomly by, of course, it's great to have Romero do it and you'd want to have all that, but it, yes. it just feels, it feels a little strange. It's also the other two vignettes are both adapted by Michael McDowell where this one's not. So it, it just, it just felt like there had been so much pre-production that went into it ahead of time that, you know, it, it just, it, it, again, maybe not filmed, like I said previously too, but it felt like it was just, pieced in in a different way yeah but at the same time it fits like a glove because all of these tales are about people learning their lessons <laughs> and people getting a little too confident making that one mistake that totally wrecks everything else up because not only is it good foreshadowing but it's very interesting how each of these stories plays with that angle especially the final one that i just have loved all of my life, especially just everybody, everybody has that. That's what this to me. That's what Tales on the Dark Side is remembered for by almost everybody is the Lover's Vow vignette. Yes, and part of it may be because you know some kids probably have someone probably has some crack out there somewhere where it's like, oh, I got to see boobs on HBO as a kid, so that was nice, and I'll always remember that. Whereas I'm sitting there and. Like I told Marcus, for all this time, it's like, yeah, but I, I kind of want to litigate this because I don't know. I got, uh, I got to disagree with you on it, man. I'm sorry. I got, definitely have to disagree with you. Personally. It's the romantic in me. I understand. I understand. It's still a, it's still just a fantastic like gothic romance that kind of has to have that ending. It, I, I know that. Yeah, but it's just I I want to fight against it because again I I love how Ray Dong Chong and James Remar get to be this this romantic couple and again these are two people that in uh, uh, especially in James Remar's end where that's not that wasn't really what they were mostly cast for like no it's also but I would I will say that for the film overall and especially I'll pull out one thing from that from that from the lovers vow section to kind of illustrate for the rest of the film because again. It's a 90s, it's a 90s Tales from the Dark Side thing. It's not meant to be the most serious thing in the world. And a lot, and surprisingly, compared to a lot of other anthology movies, every piece of this, they're very short vignettes. They're very short. Yeah, that was something else I really noticed too. And I think that maybe some of the product, whether it be considered different then to now, I don't know, suffers from, is that they have to, they have to speed through a lot of it. So when he runs into her in the alley and like tries to save her, quote unquote, I understand him trying to save somebody else who's out there, but like, it was so unnatural. Yeah. And so, and so brief that it was just like, if this happened in any circumstance, whether movie or real life, it just would never go that way whatsoever. And so a lot of, a lot of all of the stories here feel a little, flimsy in that way even though they're still enjoyable they feel a little dated for that matter i think from the way they come across but it's still something that you know you can you can reminisce on 
I would say that while Lover's Vow was the one that made the biggest dent, especially just with the performances and the, the thematics and all that, Black Cat is the one that holds up the best in that shorter sort of format okay. because it does yeah. play itself out in, I, I, maybe again, maybe that's because of the fact that it was developed for Creepshow and Creepshow was really good with that. Like it's in that happy medium where it's not too fast, but it's, it, you could still watch a whole movie out of this. Not too fast, but still furious. Yeah, oh, especially that cat. Mm. I love that cat. It is the best hit cat known to man. <laughs> Pure product of Jersey there, folks. And we should also, for, for as much as we did talk about the actors in the, I got, I got, I'm looking at the wrong camera again. For as much as, <laughs> as, much as we talked about the actors in the, uh, in, in the whole series, we did leave out William Hickey, Mark Margolis, who, again, amazing nice. character, been around forever, but now only people know him because of Breaking Bad and uh, Better Call Saul. But come on, man, the guy's a, the guy's a legend. Oh, yeah. Mark Margolis is just, has always been, he shows up, he plays. Yeah. And then William Hickey, just, I, uh, not enough people remember, not enough younger people remember William Hickey, who just was a blazing character actor, especially in the 90s, because the first thing that came to mind when you mentioned him was, uh, what do you think was the first movie that came to mind? Well, all right, because here's my thing. I, I mean, I think for a certain generation who are still going to at least know him, they'll probably go to something like Christmas Vacation. True. Uh, I have a lot of different... I'm going to let you go, and then I'm, after that, I'm going to do an impression for you. Not the movie I remember him from the most, but I'm going to do something very specific. So please tell me which, which one came to your mind. My Blue Heaven. Interesting. Okay. Very interesting. I have actually a hard time remembering him in the movie. Oh, of course. What am I talking about? I'm an idiot. I'm, a, I'm an idiot. Of course I know. I'm, of course I remember where, where he was in the movie. Oh, yeah. A box turtle. <laughs> my, thing, my thing was is that for as much as William Hickey as I know, whether he be young William Hickey or the older William Hickey, my father and I, like I've talked about a lot of times, we used to always on the weekends rent horrible uh horror movies sometimes good ones but the idea was to get like bz grade horror films just yeah. like and just watch them and there was a movie called the rune stone and the whole thing is is that whether you saw the movie or just the trailer the only thing you'll remember from the movie is do you have any idea what you have found the rune stone you're bordering on a bordering on a zoidberg impression and i love this i'm sorry board, I, I missed the bordering on a a Zoidberg impression. Zoidberg. Drama. That's true. I guess that makes sense. It's, uh, I had to mute myself there because I had a cough after doing that one. No problem. But uh, then... Uh, uh, sorry. <laughs> if you didn't think that was going to be a future episode on this show, folks, you don't know us. <laughs> and circling back to... Lot 249 is one I could have watched more of too, especially because that's the everyone's a baby before they really blew up movie with... I mean, Christian Slater was probably the hottest one in there. But then yeah. Julianne Moore and Steve Buscemi. And I love Steve Buscemi in this so much. And there's not enough Julianne Moore in this because she only gets to be like, that's another one where you really feel that pacing, like zipping through, like, okay, we got to kill these people. We got to turn them into zombies. We got to do this. We got to do that. And it's like, pull it back. I'm going to tell you also, because Robert Sedgwick is the friend slash Julianne Moore's boyfriend kind of thing in it. Yeah. And in rewatching it to prepare for this, I was not paying attention didn't look at the credits, forgot who was kind of in it. And for like a split second, 
I started to convince myself that it was maybe David Harbour before people knew who David Harbour was. Oh, that would have been perfect. Really not, but it's just like, it's just like, wait a second, what? What is going on? But no, it's, it's not, of course. It's Robert Sedgwick. That's, I'm going to leave it at that. Yeah. But, and then of course, you know, little Matthew Lawrence, like in his yes. kid, kid actor phase, being the kid in the cell, just this, it's a 90s movie. And this movie was made and released, this movie was released in 1990. So to already be a 90s movie and not even know it, it's know itself as being that much of a 90s movie at that point is an accomplishment. I'm surprised, I will admit now, that there's no Outer Limits movie. Because we got they tried. They tried. Because we got Ooh. we got the we got the the Twilight Zone movie. We have Tales from the Crypts movies. We have uh Dark the Tales from the Dark Twilight. Side movies. And your Outer Limits is, is the outlier now for all of those that didn't get its own uh, its own little movie adaptation. Apparently, Warner Brothers has tried they, they tried so hard, and one of I, I got to talk to someone about this once. Okay. C. Robert Cargill, uh, co-host of Junk Food Cinema, but also writer of such film, writer or co-writer of such films as Sinister, Doctor Strange, the first one. Also novelist who's written Sea of Rust and Day Zero, all things you should check out. He talked to me about he and Scott Derrickson developing, I think it was Man with the Glass Hand. Don't kill me if I quoted this incorrectly. I'm going to look this up again, but he was uh, developing one of those one specific story is an outer limits movie but that was going to be like it was going to be a feature length of just the one story is what you're saying right yeah because they were approaching i think they even asked him like well what movies would you guys want what story would you guys want to do and they're like we want to do man with the glass hand well then well that's interesting then because if you're going to consider that because in my mind i'm thinking about in an anthology version, because I guess Demon Tales with the, the Crypt, Glass Hand. Sorry, Demon with the Glass Hand. Because Tales from the Crypt, you know, had its Demon Knight and Bordello of Blood, but it did have the original '70s anthology movie. Because I was talking about doing it as anthologies, because there is now I'm going to probably butcher the title because the was it was, they call it the box with James Marsden and Cameron yes. Diaz and Franklin Jones. Yes. That was an Outer Limits. That was an Outer Limits episode. And that is such a good movie that I, I think that's on oh, my oh, no, I did not like the movie. The episode, I'm fine with. Mayor Winningham was in the episode. I remember. I really that. love that movie. But I, didn't, I did not like the movie version they did of it. The uh, the original Outer Limits uh, episode, I remember being good. But like, oh, So wow. if you want to count that, then, then they did do technically an Outer Limits movie, I guess. I well, keep pointing at the wrong camera. Maybe I'll just do that one when you're out sick one day or something. I don't know. <laughs> And tell anyway. Richard Kelly to come and play in the sandbox while you're out being a fuddy-duddy. Look, we, we don't agree on everything. We know this. We talked about things where I haven't liked and you've liked in the opposite way around, you know? I'm still har- I'm harassing you here, but it's because I love you. It's not because I'm, like, trying yeah. to shame you on air. I mean, folks, if you really... Th- this is not an act here. We really are just friends that said, hey, let's start doing a podcast together to cover movies like Tales from the Dark Side and talk about how Demon with the Glass Hand led to a friendship that C. Robert Cargill would have with Harlan Ellison. And just hearing him tell that story was amazing. Uh, and I'm sad it never happened. Yeah, that, well, things, things you know, come around just like Marcus has told us. You know, if you listen to certain people or listen to certain articles, they claim that somewhere, somewhere, either he or somebody said, the Collector uh, 3, which is technically the Collected, I think, yes. uh, is officially dead. But hey, Listen to Marcus. Not the case. Now, granted, it doesn't mean that he's already in the middle of fi- finally getting to film it. It means that 
he's not letting it die. And there are people out there who still have interest in it. So it's going to happen eventually. And I, and I believe it will. And when it does, uh, we'll have to pick one of the three other movies that we had mentioned, maybe no four other movies we'd mentioned on this episode, because wow, that, that made me that between the ever all ever all the between the all over the place energy and talking about reading film books as a kid and all this other stuff like it just felt like i met my best friend from childhood i didn't that that wasn't there because i had other friends of course but like he felt like a, a friend from childhood that just kind of like came out of nowhere and it's like i've known you we are we are simpatico and of course the man is welcome on the show at any point and I can't wait to talk about those Tales from the Crypt movies because the more I've looked into those, the more that gets interesting. I haven't seen it in a while, but I just remember like oh, that I was still it. a huge thing for the 90s where like you have this strong female lead who also happens to be a strong black female lead yep. in this movie where you can picture this in the 70s, some lily white like virginal figure would have been like the heroine, but no, you've got the, ugh. I mean, I, I, Spoilers for the Demon Knight episode. These are complicated people and it's outside of the mold and it fucking rocks. And it was supposed to be the second in a trilogy. And yeah, they up to the first. As much as, the first. as much as you keep talking about it and I, and I do want to talk to a bunch of the cast, the more and more I think about it, the more and more I want Ernst Dickerson on about it. But that's for another discussion. Right now, everybody should, instead should go and cross Tales from the Crypt, Tales from the Crypt, Everybody should go and cross, cross Tales from the Dark Side of the, the movie, movie off their overdue rentals list. But keep Tales from the Crypt, Demon Knight, and Bordello of Blood. And I think Ritual's the third one that I've never seen. There never was a third one. Yeah, there was. No, there wasn't. With Jennifer Grey and Tim Curry. What are you talking about? There was a third Tales from the Crypt movie that was not marketed as such, but filmed as such. Uh, it does, that doesn't matter then. That doesn't count. Oh no, it matters because what ended up happening was I think they may have still kept the, I don't know if, I don't remember if they kept the Crypt Keeper sequences, but it's, it was a whole thing because I think uh, it was a, a, a Weinstein production and like rights issues came up. We'll talk about that when we get to the Tales from the Crypt episodes. Yeah, I mean, that's oh, no, it's still presented the Tales from the Crypt presents ritual. I've never, I've never, I've never heard of this. <laughs> Oh yeah, I'm gonna shoot you the link. It went direct to DVD in 2006 after being uh, planned for 2002. Yeah. Anyway, go cross off Tales from the Dark Side of the movie off your overdue rentals list. And uh, in the meantime, while they're doing that and while they're catching up on everything else, Mike, where can people find us? Well, when you're not busy looking up recipes to, to cook children or looking into the specific lore of gargoyle love relationships and the legally binding contracts and promises that bind them. You can find us on the internet. We can pretty much find all the answers to all those other things. And if you can't, they just haven't been written yet. But what has been written and what has been recorded and placed under the internet for 50 times officially as of this episode <laughs> is our show, which can be found on social media platforms like TikTok and Instagram at Overdue Rental Show on Twitter at Rentals Overdue, on Facebook at Overdue Rentals. And if you want to email us love letters, more anthologies to cover, or your theories about whether Matthew Lawrence really did get a happy ending in this movie, mm. please email us at overdurentals at gmail.com. 
I'm not really questioning the ending, but it just felt like it, we didn't really play the Matthew Lawrence card too much here. So yeah. Mr. Lawrence, you're welcome. Come to the show. But while you're on the internet, finding all these answers, looking up all this stuff, and thinking about where to find our 50 episodes so far, you can find us wherever you ethically source your podcasts, at Apple Podcasts, Anchor, Spotify, wherever you find quality listening material, we're there. Audible too. Uh, really should look into that Audible sponsorship because, I mean, that'd be fantastic. Maybe we get free credits out of it. And while we have you on this wild goose chase, filing all the forms, doing all the things, rate, review, and subscribe our sh to our show because we want to keep the rental counter open. We want to keep making the episodes you like and we want to keep having wonderful little horse races like Greg Davies versus Dylan O'Brien. Uh, those episodes are apparently our two most popular and they keep racing each other for the top. Uh, folks, you want to be part of the contest. That's how you do it. Over to your rentals. We're here. Have some popcorn. Blah bye. Blah bye. If you enjoy listening to Overdue Rentals, make sure to support us by going to anchor.fm slash overdue rentals slash support to donate and keep us going to make better episodes for the future.